Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome back to The Blind Spot, everyone. I am very excited to bring uh, Belinda Gore uh, onto this platform today. Uh, She is a well-known teacher on object relations in the Enneagram. Uh, She has a book that will be out next year that is going to provide some information that really is not available anywhere right now. So if you come off of this episode and just need to know everything that's in Belinda's brain, then I recommend that you go to her website, which is belindagore.com, where she has many different teaching offerings that can really help you to understand what it is we're talking about when we're referencing object relations and this is a complicated topic. I've looked into your classes, Belinda, although I've never taken them. And it seems like most of them are like 14 weeks long or something like that. Is that true? I do a part one for seven weeks and then a part two for seven weeks. So yeah. basically, yes, 14 weeks. Yeah. So this is a really deep topic. So we have an hour today. Um, what I was hoping that we would do is talk about the more nuanced aspects of object relations and how this is playing into a lot of other topics that are hot in the Enneagram field right now. So for listeners, um, we'll do some basic descriptions of what we're talking about before we land on a specific topic, but I'm just going to name that um, this probably could be confusing if you don't have a really strong base in object relations. So if you're finding it confusing, I always tell people, like, take what you get from this podcast. And if something spikes your curiosity, um, part of what excites me is introducing you to the teachers that you can go hook up with to learn more. But hopefully the people that are listening, um, we haven't done descriptions of type on this podcast. We have done some basic descriptions of how I'm viewing the instincts and how I'm defining them, but we don't have basic descriptions of object relations. So it's important to me that everybody knows that Belinda is a member of the IEA, and she's been with that organization since its inception. She's an accredited member with distinction. And one of the things that I love doing is bringing true experts to this platform, because while I like to acknowledge that the different experts in the field still have different opinions. So I don't think that we can ever say that somebody is 100% right about something or 100% wrong. I really love approaching the Enneagram as this discovery and evolution process. So the other thing I'll name that makes me really excited is that Belinda is also very well versed in Jungian psychology. So we may bring a little Myers-Briggs typology into this discussion as well. So I discovered that um, Belinda is an ENFP. For those of you that have been following me from the beginning, I thought I was an ENFP. For those of you that have been following, you've also seen that I've thought I've been every Enneagram type except a nine or a five. So maybe that's because my secondary function is introverted thinking and introverted thinking loves accuracy. It loves going back and reanalyzing and revising and nothing is ever complete, which is why those of you that have introverted feeling, which is just this sense of like, I know this, like I feel it, like a lot of conviction, you know, you may engage with people with introverted thinking and say, I don't think that person knows what they're talking about. And as my primary function is extroverted intuition and my secondary function is introverted thinking, those of you that are listening may be like, why is she pinging here and pinging there? And she just said this, and now she's saying that. And I'm just going to throw that out there, that that's a manifestation of my cognitive processing style, is that I don't get particularly attached to ideas. This is also why I have identified as having a seven fix, um, even though I'm a three, because sevens can jump from thing to thing. But when you look at the core motivation underneath, all of my stuff is point three stuff, and I just have some tendencies that look seven-ish to people 
people in the outside world. The other thing we're going to bring in is some astrology because Belinda is also really well versed in astrology. So I'm going to pause right there. And Belinda, would you just go ahead and describe a little bit about your experience of being a point three with your Myers-Briggs type, with your instinctual stack, and with your astrological map? Give us like three to five minutes on what does that look like from Belinda's perspective and what do we see in the outside world that we might be able to pin as we're just watching you in the interview today? I love it. It's the extroverted intuitive who wants the whole big picture, you know, and that's part of it. Let's start there because as an ENFP, the extroverted intuitive enjoys the big picture of everything. And so I do have introverted feeling. And so intuition plus feeling means that I feel my way through a lot. And in talking about object relations, because of my orientation, it feels right to jump in and feel my way through and learn as I go along. I've been uh, teaching object relations for about seven or eight years, and I've learned so much because as I go along, I interact with people and learn from them. And I love the ENFP-ENTP combo because I map my way through things. Like, because I do it with introverted thinking, this is why I love all these typologies and layering them on top of each other. And just to give listeners, I've been learning a lot about the neuroimaging with different cognitive preferences. And if you do the neuroimaging with an extroverted intuit, which we both are, basically when an idea happens, it almost looks like a firecracker went off inside of the brain. Yeah, everything lights up and there's a million connections happening. And then I would imagine that for the introverted feeling person that there's this like felt sense in the body of like, this is true or this is not true. Whereas for me, there's a lot of mental activity that starts mapping. And at the same time, astrologically, I have Sun, Mercury, and Mars in Aquarius in the 10th house, and I have five planets in air signs. So I have a lot of air, which means that I too am oriented toward mapping. But if I'm wanting to be accurate, to me, accuracy is based on what's my feeling state. Mm. I resonate with this as truth. When is your birthday, Belinda? What's the... January 31st. Okay. That's my son, and he has that birthday, so that just made me, that's what popped in my extroverted intuition brain, Um, and I'm Aquarius also. I'm February 15th, yeah, but I have tons of Sagittarius, which is a fire sign, so for listeners- seven shows up more for you than than it would for me, right? Yeah, so we're both threes, so this is going to be fun for listeners to appreciate because you have some of that grounding energy- from mm-hmm. your other, uh, mm-hmm. what is it, houses or planets? I have Taurus rising. Okay. And I have a lot of, well, we'll get complicated here. I have Capricorn on my ninth and 10th houses. And so a sun in the 10th house. All of those are very grounded presences. My Venus and Jupiter in the ninth house in, in Capricorn. So... I show up as very grounded, as as the sort of the mountain. And you're going to show up with more of that Sagittarian fieriness that looks sevenish. And I'm glad we're talking about it in this way. As we were discussing earlier, people will say, well, no, she feels like a seven. Well, but the feeling you know, that I'm picking up may not have to do with your core personality structure. And to me, the beauty of object relations is that we're looking at what is the blueprint? What is the personality built on? And if I may, object relations speaks to 
how the personality is built based on an object relations theory. It's my early connection with a primary other. And there are three primary others, nurturing figure or mothering figure, protecting figure or fathering figure, and what I call a belonging figures or family. Now, when I learned it from Don and Russ, early on, it was mother-father and then the mother-father partnership. But there's more to home and family than just the mother-father. And it really does get projected onto the community. Family gets projected onto community, organization, the world. So there are three primary others, and then there are three primary affects, or the emotional connection we develop with the early primary other. It's an attachment affect, an a frustration affect, or rejection affect. You know, can I name these for just a minute? I just want to pause, and and sometimes I'll interrupt when. Um, I'm tracking and I'm wanting to just give a little more clarity for people listening to a little piece of something. So thank you for that frame. I think that's really helpful for us to launch from. I think that this whole affect around attachment, frustration, and rejection is really, really interesting. Um, This has been another area that I don't think that there's like a book devoted to really describing these, is there? I haven't no. found it. That's why I'm writing one. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, and when I think of, yeah, I can't wait to read your book because I'm thinking of a million directions that you could have gone with this book and I'm assuming it can't include everything. Right. When I'm thinking about attachment, these are the three, six, and nines. And these are the people who are structuring their behaviors around this fear of losing that attachment to an other. Does that feel like an adequate way of describing it? Fear wouldn't be the right word. What is it? It it is um, the affect. So Mm -hmm. first, fear, you know, um, anger, sorrow, those are the emotions we're accustomed to. Got it. So attachment as an affect is emotionally, I feel connected with you. Mm -hmm. A six might be more afraid of losing it, but it's what do I have to do or not do to keep that attachment affect alive? Have you heard that some teachers are talking about attachment types as having an attachment to disconnect? It's like we want the attachment, but sometimes we also have some self-sabotaging behaviors that actually impair the attachment. Have you noticed that at all in your work? As an attachment affect, I think sometimes we get confused between attachment theory and attachment as an affect. Always we're going to have the other two affects, frustration and rejection, active because we all have all three. Got it. Yeah. So what I'm now imagining is that if attachment is the primary one that's running our biology, that then this attachment to disconnect, which I've heard spoken about, could be manifesting because just like we have all three instincts, we have all three structures. We have frustration and rejection. So if I'm wanting attachment but my frustration object relations are rising up and I'm like, ah, you're not doing this the way I want. We're going to experience frustration, which feels like a barrier to attachment sometimes. And we also have our rejection structures that might rise up where it's like, ooh, you're important to me, but also I don't want you. Like it doesn't feel safe. You're important important to me and you hurt me. Mm, That's what rejection is based on. I've been hurt. So yeah. reject the rejecting other. I love that. Yeah. So as I'm just thinking about this, I'm a three with a two wing, which means I'm an attachment type, but I have rejection in my wing, mm-hmm. which could explain to me why sometimes I feel like my attachment pattern, and in here I'm talking about anxious, avoidant, this type oh, of attachment, um, attachment. pattern. 
in my attachment theory pattern, sometimes I feel like it flips. I think that when I'm in my point three place, I get more anxiously attached. Mm -hmm. And when I go into my two wing, there's something that can look avoidant because I think that's when rejection arises in my structure that I'm kind of like, ooh, you hurt me. I'm going to push away from that. Is that fit into the frame? It could. We could also interpret the same thing as you moving to six and your soul child mm. and your soul child at six has more of a anxiety component to it mm -hmm. and your stress point at nine has a more withdrawn aspect. That makes sense. And I'm more inclined to look at that first okay. before I look at the wings. Okay, yeah. Now, we're talking about interpreting behavior. And the most important thing I'm looking at with object relations is what's the foundation the personality structure is built on? What blueprint do you and I share as threes? Let's talk about it. So what type was your mother? My mother was a two with a three okay. wing. My dad was a six um, with, I'm not so sure, maybe a five wing. What we're saying, so let me just fill in a little piece here. Please. In this grid of three primary others and three dominant affects, the three by three grid gives us nine cells in the matrix. And each of the Enneagram types has a cell that describes what underlies the development of the personality structure. So mm -hmm. type three is attachment to the mothering figure or the nurturing figure. So your question about what type was my mother would be mm -hmm. particularly relevant for threes because we're attached to doing what our mothering figures wanted, we believed, so that we could keep their nurturing activities flowing toward us so that we could continue to feel loved, seen, uh, cared for, all of those things that are important in the three structure. I want to say one more thing, though, that as we look at object relations, we're we start, of course, with, if you will, analyzing the nature of the cell or the combination of affect and primary other. But that's just the blueprint for the personality. And we know that who we are is not our personalities, that we're on a path to uh, softening these personality structures in order to discover that we are, in fact, our true nature, mm -hmm. are, in fact, something deeper than our personalities. Mm -hmm. So we want to know, what is this house I've built based on the blueprint? But I don't want to be all about the house. I want to live in the house. Yes. Well, and one of the other things that I am remembering is that you also have studied for decades with the diamond approach. Is yes. that correct? Yes. Yeah. And so when I hear you talk about true nature... This is one of the things that we're studying in the Diamond Approach. I just joined a Diamond group in March, oh, so right. I'm really excited for this path. I actually have a retreat this weekend. Okay. So um, I think that the Diamond Approach really gives us some amazing tools once we've discovered our Enneagram type and our object relations theory for actually doing some embodiment work and healing to get back to true nature. Is that what the diamond approach has done for you? Or would you speak a little bit about what you've loved about it? Wow, big question. Um, I was thinking Don and Russ made their transition from the Gurdjieffian work to the diamond approach in the 90s. And I met them in 1990. So that was my first introduction. And in the diamond approach, object relations is spoken about, but not so much in the context of the Enneagram. The diamond approach is, for me, about recognizing that I discover 
more about the nature of reality through my own process of inquiry. Mm. And so the methods of inquiring are one of the practices, and meditation is a practice. And so it has given me the foundation that allows me to stay present as my personality structures soften. Mm, I, I love that. I yeah. have tools and I have experiences that hold the inner experience of true nature steady as those things that I've identified with begin to fall away. Mm, I love that because when people learn the Enneagram, oftentimes it's a little bit like a slap. Like the Enneagram isn't really a feel-good tool. Like when you dive into finding your passion and your fixations, it can be a little, I I mean, they sometimes say you found your type when you find the one that makes you cringe. Was it like that for you at all? And, you know, I named that, I think the attachment types have a harder time finding their way to type because there's something that... Well, I have different theories about that. I won't go into that now, but that's just something I've observed that threes, sixes, and nines, specifically sixes and nines, seem to have a harder time landing in type. Some of them don't. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, how was it for you? How did you discover the Enneagram? Can you remember to what it was like to discover you were a three? Did that happen right away? I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I learned about the Enneagram through an article in Yoga Journal when Helen Palmer's first book came out in the 80s. I knew someone who had been to a workshop. I was fascinated. I went to a workshop with Helen um, at a conference. She was very much into meditation, as she still is, as she says. She was a teacher of meditation. And I didn't get it. It wasn't a clear enough map for me. Um, But a friend of mine told me about, um, (laughs) she saw this book, and there was a workshop going to be held in eastern Pennsylvania. I live in Ohio. Would I like to drive with her? And this ex-Jesuit was going to be teaching. That was Don Riso. Mm. I went to a weekend workshop with them, and there were nine people. I mean, That tells you how long ago the experience was. I was fascinated. And they also spoke on the Friday night about a topic that's dear to me, which is how do we understand ourselves differently from indigenous people who were pre-focused on individuality? Mm. That... For indigenous people, being part of the tribe and the natural world was the first place of identification. So this whole notion of individuation that we use in the Jungian world was not so important. So Don and Russ, for whatever reason, spoke about pre-absorption in personality and individuality. And so I was there with... What does pre-absorption mean? I'm still not tracking the definition of that one. That it's cultural and societal orientation that is less oriented toward the development and success, number three, of the individual as a separate person Mm. and more about the collective Got it. Okay. And so we talk a lot in the Enneagram world and in the Diamond Approach world about what it is to be separate. And Roxanne Howe Murphy, my dear friend and colleague, talks about the great loss. And that loss is when we come into this world and we've lost our intimate connection with being, that we separate in order to develop the individuality of this personal self. Mm, So can I say something? Yeah. Yeah, like, so what's coming up for me as I'm hearing you say this is that, okay, when we, before we come into this world, I like to think of like a collective unconscious that we're all kind of like swimming in. 
and then whatever energies coalesce into the fetus that grows inside of a mother. And then the beginning of coming into this world starts and birth is the first big separation from the umbilical cord that was mother. And yet when we're first born, assuming all goes well, we're brought up to the mother's breast. And there is these moments where we feel that beautiful, sweet connection. But then there are those moments that we get put in our bassinet and all of a sudden we are alone. And it's like, wow, like I am wired to be a part of this collective. How can I also exist as a separate self? And there's a lot of destabilizing anxious, let's go to the three core emotions. There's anger, there's fear, and there's sadness that comes up with that loss. And so how do we learn to be in right relationship with these very human emotions? And that's going to look different based on our type and object relations and whatever other layers we want to put on that. Did I, did I get that? Well, let's see. Yes. Um, I'm thinking about Margaret Mahler's book, The Psychological Birth of the Human Infant. Mm. And she tracks the developmental process. She was an object relation theorist okay. and worked with infants. The, the earlier theorists had not so much. And tracking the developmental movement from uh, what the Jungians call, well, the, the dual unity the Jungians call it the, the French term, the participation mystique, the mystical participation, the dual mm-hmm. unity that we still feel with the mother after we're outside her body because mm-hmm. we're still functioning within her emotional field and maybe being fed by her body. And so the rest of our life is sort of spent trying to reclaim that perfect union, which is why sometimes we expect to find that through other people. And that is disappointing eventually for all of us. And so this work is to recognize what is that object relation that just got activated and how can I be with that in a way that allows me to be individuated and connected to the whole? Is that sort of where we're headed? Yeah, I think that as threes, we're probably of all the types, the most attached to the nurturing figure. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the nature of our structure. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that our journey for everyone is to return to that dual unity, although that would be the the nine structure of becoming part of the the one again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about the six? The the six is looking for safety. Okay. So they don't need to they don't have that needing to become a part of the one there trying to well, find that protection and safety more inside of themselves as the core thing. We're all looking for all of it. themselves because okay. the, what the personality does as infants, we are dependent on somebody, some things outside ourselves to survive. Yes, And so it's a natural evolution that in our separateness, we believe that there are separate someones who will give us our sense of belonging, our sense of being nurtured, our sense of safety. I love that. Yeah, belonging that being sense. the family, nurturing being the mothering figure, safety being the fathering figure. Mm, yeah, of course. So we're out looking for that. And of course, the the spiritual journey is discovering that we in fact, have access to that ourselves. Hmm. And rather than attempting to return to the dual unity, I think the personality wants that. But uh, as we talk about the instinctual variants, that the fourth instinctual variant, you know, the, the instinctual variants are reside, if you will, in the belly center. But there's a fourth one. And the higher instinct is toward enlightenment. Mm. But that's an enlightenment that is a conscious 
becoming part of the whole instead of returning to the infant state of just immersing ourselves in the, the mother field. I've never heard this before. I'm curious if our listeners have this fourth instinct. I mean, I feel that inside of me and I've never been able to give it a name. Mm -hmm. And this growth path that I'm on, you just so beautifully described that. And I sort of got chills throughout my body because I'm like, a fourth instinct. That's so exciting. Mm. I think Russ has talked about the fourth instinct. When Diana Redmond and I teach instincts, we, t- we teach about the evolution to, to being motivated, not so much by our instinctual drives, social, sexual, self-pres, but by our instinctual drive to conscious, consciously becoming part of the ocean. I love that. Now, I'm tracking two things. First of all, we didn't get back to your story of whether you um, found yourself to be like how you found yourself to be a three. So I just want to come back to that briefly. Did you, this is such a extroverted intuitive conversation and I love it. And then I tend to bring us back and let's Let's ping off of that again. Yeah. Did you know you were a three right away after that weekend or did they, how did that happen? Well, I'm not remembering exactly, but in the very first version of the Ready, the Riso Hudson Enneagram Type Indicator, I tested as a two. But of course, as we were talking, my mother was a two. And if, as, if I was attached to continuing that relationship, of course, I'm going to view myself as cultivating those aspects of myself that are more two-ish. Or seeing that makes sense that way. Yeah. When in fact I'm a three with a four wing. That totally makes sense. And let me name thing I, I'm noticing right here. So my mother's a one with a two wing. So that's why when I look at the trifix model, and some people think I have a lot of one-ish energy, or they, you know, somebody has thought maybe I'm a one, but I have all these object relations with my mother who is point one. Yes. So that's going to come up for me. And then she has a two wing. So it's also not surprising that I might um, have more object relations active around mm-hmm. my two wing mm-hmm. than my four wing. Does that make sense? I'm cautious about talking about object relation activity with our wings. Okay. Because how I think about it is if you're building a house and you've built the house on a blueprint, then you may do some modifications, but your two-by-fours are pretty much in place. You know, if, if, you're, if you're a split level and not a Victorian house, then you can do a little remodeling, but you're still going to be kind of that split level. Got it. So you're saying wings are also inborn, just like type is inborn, or do you think we develop one wing or the other over our lifespan? What do you think about that? I think it's more flexible. Uh, Okay. um, Because we have both energies. Some people think that type, like as threes, we are the embodiment of two energy and four energy that when put together looks like a three. Is that how you see it? uh, theory, and my... um, my teacher has been Sandra Maitri in the Diamond mm-hmm. Approach work. And so Sandra learned the Enneagram from Claudia Naranjo, and he tracked the types as the motivation of the two, let's see, going to the four and falling back to three. I, I can't describe it well to you. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's one approach to how the types come about. Okay. And so the other thing that um, is really interesting to me is that as I'm talking to you, like I love your grounded energy. It helps me to be more grounded. Mm -hmm. If you listen to some of my other episodes that I've done with eights or people with a lot more like fire Mm -hmm. in the, um, there's like this intensity to it Mm -hmm. that I really have to work at staying grounded Mm -hmm. when I'm with somebody that has higher intensity Mm -hmm. energy, like I'm 
going to say like less groundedness. I, and it's interesting for me to watch that. That's almost what my chameleon like aspect of three does <laughs> is that if I'm with somebody that's really intense, I get really intense. If I'm with somebody that's more grounded, I tend to ground a little bit more. And within my structure, I default to intense. Uh-huh. So in my life, I tend to attract a lot of SJs. If we're talking about Myers-Briggs, I tend to form intimate partnerships with nines and friendships. And I tend to love it when I'm working with somebody that's inviting me into that part of myself that is grounded. So I just thought I'd name that. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious in your life, um, are there certain energies that you found yourself in connection with more often than others? What are you noticing? Well, let me put that on pause and just Please. come back In a couple of years, after you've been in the Diamond Approach work for a few years, I'll be interested to have this conversation again, because while I'm naturally inclined to groundedness because of my astrological map, I've also learned to really open the belly center and Mm -hmm. to stay grounded in the belly center most of the time. Mm -hmm. So I start there, because for me, that's presence. Yeah, I'm right here right now when I'm grounded in the belly. And when I teach, when I talk, that's sort of become a default position. So Mm -hmm. I'm using some natural tendencies, but I'll be interested in as you learn that meditation process, if that impacts you. Yeah. Your question about who do I tend to attract, probably more fours and nines. And uh, four certainly being my wing, I tend to be in relationships with fours, but I've had colleagues and strong relationships with nines. I think the three nine is a special combination. I think we see a lot of threes and nines together. Is that something you've observed too? We like each other. There's like a magnetism, (laughs) it seems like. I haven't looked for it. So I can't say that I've noticed it, but that doesn't mean I don't think it's true. Okay. Yeah. I've just heard that there's a lot of three nine couples and I also have a lot of friends with nine energy. So it's just something I'm observing. I don't know if it's true, but yeah. yeah, Thank you. Yeah. So what was the other question that I asked before we bookmarked? I don't remember now. I don't know if we're, if you're finished with my, um, how did I? Oh, your story. Yeah. How did you become a three? Uh, Yeah. Did you know it right away or uh, when did you figure that out? So I did identify a lot with two because my mother was a two and my mother's family of origin, she was number five of 10 children. There was a lot of two energy in that field, in that family field. I don't even remember. I thought I was a two with a three wing. Other people were giving me feedback about being a nine with an eight wing, but I think that's the groundedness that you're identifying. And then, of course, as good three that I am, when I really saw the truth of being a three, I was filled with horror that other people were going to know that uh, that I was ambitious, that I was competitive, that I cared a lot about how other people saw me. And so that's the part that I have often said, and I think other people do too, is that we can confirm our type because with the, the cringing, because if it's accurate, then we can see how we've shown up in all the levels of health. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm curious, when you were coming into contact with some of this difficult information to see about yourself, did you go through a phase in time where, because as threes, we're so identified or connected with that nurturing figure? Was there a period of time where maybe you had some anger towards your mother or, you know, how are you working with your object relations, Mm. your core object relation? And what was that journey like for you? Is your mother still living? No, she died 23 years ago. Oh, wow. So at the beginning of your Enneagram journey? Uh, Well, um, about nine years into that. Okay, got it. In the late 89 and my mother died in 99. 
Yeah. Um, Would you mind speaking about that relationship? How, like, how were you processing and integrating that in your early Enneagram journey? Um, I think it was really more in my diamond approach work after she died. I did a lot of work around giving myself permission to be angry with my mother, to see her faults, to see the ways she did let me down, to see how her own two with a three wing focus on appearances, uh, wanting to be, um, I, I felt as though I was her gift to her family. She's number five of 10, but my oldest aunt had a child, and then there had been no babies in this huge family for 11 years. There, I find that big families often don't replicate what they came from because they know how hard it was. Yeah. And so no babies, plus my oldest uncle had died about one month before I was born. And I had a big insight just 10 or 15 years ago when one of my aunts said we were all so sad about Doval's death and you were there to make us happy. Wow. And yeah. I felt like first my mother had something to give as a two to her family that was a desirable gift, this cute little baby girl. Mm -hmm. And my job was to make other people happy, to cure their sadness. So what did I do? I became a psychotherapist you know, yeah. to help cure other people's sadness. Yeah, yeah. That really lands really deeply with me. So in the Diamond Approach work, we often start with red energy and working with the superego and recognizing that this came from our mothers, if you're a three specifically, and really sort of attacking the superego message, but not attacking the person. But sometimes we visualize that person in some of the practices as one of the modalities for getting to the other energies like compassion and, mm -hmm. you know, really dropping away from that identification. So it sounds like you were doing more of the diamond approach work and coming in contact with this anger after your mother had died. Yes. And I think that it's in some ways easier because if you're speaking about your anger, your mom doesn't have to hear about it because it's inherently painful for those of us that are mothers and have done the best that we could mm -hmm. to hear that, oh, I if if I have a child that's a three. I am the primary reason that they have most of their object relations. And how do we as mothers integrate the reality that we were doing our best? And I'm naming this for selfish reasons because my mother's a one with a two wing and is very much alive and very much a part of my life and very much listening to me talk about all the ways she screwed me up. And it feels really important for me to name that many of the things I love about myself are also the result of my object relations. And so I guess I'm looking for words of wisdom. Maybe you're talking directly to my mother right now, Belinda, as she listens to this, because she's not in the diamond approach or the Enneagram and like this stuff isn't her thing. And so when you have a daughter that is externally processing her object relations and naming things that make her angry and doing boundaries work and being like, mom, I love you. And I need your one wing, two energy to back the hell off. You know, like how do we as mothers hold what is really difficult because like the love is there. It's like so palpable and we're working through our own issues around frustration and rejection and trying to get to that integration place I want you to speak to all the mothers out there that are having trouble with their adult daughters or sons that are working through their own shit. I talk frequently about every personality needs grist for the mill. Every personality needs a challenge or a conflict to begin that process of developing. It's like it's part of the process to have friction. 
the separation from the mother requires that there be a reason to separate. And so if we didn't, well, first, first thing is, it's not all how you behave as a mother. It's also how your child perceives you. So if you're a type one, as your mother might be, that you're trying to do it right. But your child, who's a three, sees you through the filter of her own pre-existing orientation to the world. So she's going to pick up the right and wrongness and be ultra-sensitive to the wrongness, even though a different child who's looking at you as a one perceives through the filter of nineness and wants what you have to give and wants to subdue herself in order to be with you so that the boundary is not important at that stage of development. And a five child is going to view the oneness in a different way. So number one is we are personalities for our children, and they need us to be personalities so they have something to play off of and begin the separation process. And they're going to perceive us through their own filter. And it doesn't mean that we've done anything wrong or that we've made them be what they are. Don and Russ, in in the early development of the levels of functioning, spoke to that we don't make our children be what they are, that however healthy we are as parents— To that degree, we support them in being able to rise to that level of health within their own type structure. Yeah. Can I make another observation? And I'm speaking from the point three where I also look at Eric Erickson's models of development. And as I'm diving into my work, it feels like there's some stuckness around that autonomy versus self-doubt, which feels like that six arrow that I'm working on integrating. And it also feels like there are issues around that what happens or is supposed to happen as a teenager around developing your own identity. And we know that identification is one of the core defense mechanisms of point three. So in some ways, as a 48-year-old woman, I feel like I'm doing some toddler-like behaviors or some teenager-like behaviors because I'm sort of working through that whole finding my own sense of self. And for me, that requires a little bit of pushing away while I figure out who I am, developing that body center, getting that groundedness. And so when I sometimes watch my own reactivity, and that, of course, triggers shame because I'm a three, I can have more compassion because I recognize that I'm still working this out, like I'm trying to get there. So it seems like the best that anyone who's resonating with anything that I'm talking about can do is just ask the universe to hold the loving figures that we're having some friction with or that we're working some things out on to say, please hold them with all the compassion, love, strength, so that they can be with whatever it is I'm doing right now. seems like that's the best we can do. Yes, and getting clear with ourselves that the work you're doing with your mother is the work you're doing with your concept of your mother. Yes. And your concept of yourself. Yes. And as these concepts loosen, and to me, I'm still getting a sense of all this because like I said, I'm very new to the diamond approach. I'm imagining that when I can integrate and or connect with whatever the language is with black, that that starts to fall away. Yeah. Let's just say the the black is, is a, a deep kind of acceptance, but it's also hatred. You know, okay. some of that. So we work on our relationship to hatred with black? Yeah. Okay. Um, we're unwinding a beautifully mysterious and complex process of what it means to be a human being with human consciousness. Mm. And that gave me shivers again. 
that we have these goals of liberation and enlightenment. And frankly, from an egoic level, we don't have a clue what that really means. Right. We're, it's hard to even talk about because it's a felt sense. Yeah. Well, and it's beyond concept that we're capable of. We, right. we have our... So the whole object relation thing is that I'm relating to the other as an object, which is not... Uh, it's from Martin Buber talked about I thou or I it. And the object is an it. It is presence in our field that is the source of something we want. And so we project our idea of what it is onto that, and we interact with that person, that mother, that whomever, whoever we're in relationship with, as the concept we have of them. And so the beauty of it is, as our object relation patterns our own, soften, we start to be able to see and experience the true nature of the other. Mm. And so we can get past our concept into we're no longer objectifying the other. We're being with another being on the journey of the human experience on planet Earth. Yeah. The way I'm experiencing it right now is that, you know, sometimes my mom does something that activates my object relation and I feel the contraction and, you know, the fight response and all of that happen inside of the body. And if I can remember in the moment, oh, she's just doing a pattern that's not really her, there's this big softening and that's when the heart becomes less defended and I can open it. And I can sort of connect with what is the what is the essence quality right. she's trying to bring into my world, which is filled with beauty. But I still get tripped up on the object relation, and so I'm at that space. Because the ego is about I, me, my, mine. Right. And so it's all about me. Right. And what we start to discover is people are not out to get us. If they seem to be out to get us, it's because of the concept they have of us or the projection they've put on us Yeah, when they're not seeing the essence of who we are. And when you say that, it brings up the reality for me that I struggle the most with the rejection types Mm -hmm. because when I step into one of their object relations, it feels like this wall goes up and there's like a rejection of whatever it is that I brought into the space, which sometimes I also perceive as me. Yes. And it feels like there's no access point for doing repair or reconnection. Do you have any advice for how do we work with people that are heavily locked in a rejection structure? We just we accept, accept it. We accept yeah. that they're in their structure. And if they're invested in a rejection, remember it's because they've they're responding to an old hurt. The rejection, I love rejection types. We don't have time to really go into how that dynamic works. But rejection is activated by a hurt or threat. And therefore, if somebody's deeply in it, they can't see past that to see who we really are. They, they're working out their pattern. Yeah. So trying to say, oh, but I'm a nice person. Doesn't matter. No, because if we can just be in a place of acceptance, open-heartedness, love and grace, and then some part of them may feel that and maybe they can come back to us, but that we don't take personally the rejection, because they're not seeing us or giving us what our pattern wants. Yeah. And that feels like that essence quality of point five, which is non-attachment, mm-hmm. where it's like, I don't need this attachment with you to look the way I'd like it to look. I'm trusting in some bigger universal thing that 
where the truth is that we are all connected. I mean, that was one thing the pandemic showed us is that it actually highlighted like how interconnected the entire world and maybe the whole universe, you know, actually is. But I think as an attachment type, resting into the deep knowing mm -hmm. that the attachment is still there, even in the presence of rejection, yeah. that's another edge I've been working. And to just discern non-attachment is just not engaged in attachment. Detachment is what we get mixed up about, that we believe that non-attachment means a detaching yep. rejection of and the higher aspect of five is just, we're all here, you know, it's just, yeah. we're all part of this uh, amazing abstract universe that yeah. has taken on physical form. Yeah. Do you have time for one last question? One, yes. Okay. We develop these object relations because there are all these little mini traumas that happen to us when we come into the world is how I've come to think about it. We have these big T traumas, which are, you know, some horrible act that we endured, but there are these little T traumas, which are just all the times the world doesn't meet us the way that we wish it would. As we identify these, I've been doing some work with Sarah Payton on resonant healing, which involves time travel, which sort of involves some imagery of going back to that very small wounded self and providing first aid in that moment. And for me as a three, especially as an ENTP, that has helped me actually connect with the feelings mm -hmm. that were associated with that. And that's where I've found a lot of my healing to happen. I'm curious, I'm also in the diamond approach. So this whole development of the belly center and that groundedness is something that um, I really feels very powerful for me. I'm just curious if there are other modalities or things that you think are really helpful for anybody listening to this podcast who might be starting to say, wow, this is really interesting. I've suddenly seen some things that I didn't realize were acting in me before. Of course, you know, we'd probably love it if people wanted to find a diamond group. I love resonant healing. Are there other modalities that you particularly love that we can just throw into the space that people can investigate if it calls to them? Oh, wow. It's almost too big a question in that uh, we've already talked about, you know, first uh, with the Enneagram and exploring the instincts as well and exploring object relations and exploring Myers-Briggs and the Jungian notion of personality and exploring astrology. And I also explore Tarot as the path of individuation in a different language, a language of imagery and, and a, a different kind of teaching. But there's so many, like, resonant healing, and I can't even think of all the things. I was talking with a friend about, well, there's Reiki, and there's Feldenkrais, and there's Traeger, and there's, you know, on and on and on just for the body. Yeah. Then, you know, dream work and all kinds of emotional healing. Uh, yeah. So we, we live in an Aquarian age in which everything now is available. I mean, it's, it's available. Yeah. We're not hierarchical. Every it's almost overwhelming. Yes. It's like, where do it I is. start? It is. Yeah. And being an ENFP, I believe that we can trust what we're drawn to. Yeah, I believe that too. I mean, I have no idea how I've gotten to this point on my path. All I can say is that the universe through something in my course that caught my attention. And for whatever reason, my body gave it a yes. And it's just, for me, been an evolution to developing my own unique self and the way that I show up in the world. And I think that's how it is for all of us. So what I would say as advice or recommendation is, yeah. if you don't have a, a meditation practice, start one. I love that. Because meditation yes. is how we begin to disconnect from our identification with the egoic structure. Mm. And I love that you said that because, yeah, I found my way to meditation in 2012 when I went to my first mindful eating 
retreat. Mm -hmm. And I spent four hours in silence for the very first time and found John Mm Kabat-Zinn and went down that whole pathway. So just for any listeners that are hearing this, I think that finding a mindfulness-based stress reduction class, checking out offerings at Spirit Rock or with Tara Brock or with the Insight Meditation Society up in Bari, Massachusetts. There's so many ways you can access meditation, yeah. but those are just been mine that I really found helpful. And a lot of people go to yoga classes and learn mm-hmm. about meditation. And yeah. there's such a variety of what's available. Yeah. And so oh. look, experiment, and then see. So I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Belinda. This has been so wonderful. And yeah. I'll just throw it into the universe. I hope that at some point we can do this again. It was so fun for me. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it too. If you or someone you love is interested in learning more about mindfulness and meditation or would like to explore resonant healing for working with old hurts, please reach out to me at my practice phone number, 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation or email me at contact at EnneagramBlindspots.com. I look forward to working with anyone that wants accompaniment on their healing journey, and I thank you all for being with me on mine.